Expedition 44, welcome again. We want to thank everybody for tuning in today, and we're very excited about our show. We uh, have a new person here today, and I'll let Matt introduce, but we're very excited about this. Yeah, this is uh, Dr. Carmen I'm so welcome on. Uh, we're really glad that you're here. Um, a little bit about Carmen for our Audience, uh, Dr. Imes has a BA in theology from uh, Multnomah University, um, a master's in biblical studies from Gordon-Conwell University, a PhD in biblical theology with a concentration in Old Testament from Wheaton College, and she teaches Old Testament at Prairie College in Alberta, Canada. Uh, some of her books um, are Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. She also has Bearing Yahweh's Name at Sinai, which was her dissertation, mm -hmm. and uh, an illustrated Exodus in Hebrew. So welcome on. Um, Thank you. Mind introducing yourself to the audience. Tell us a little bit about you and what you're working on. Sure. So I'm originally from the States. I grew up in Colorado and um, I have lived in lots of different places, including Oregon, Illinois, North Carolina, the Philippines, and now Alberta. So I probably have something in common with just about everybody watching. Um, and I have always had a love for the Old Testament, even as a child, I was really interested in reading the Bible, and it's just a, an interest that's never gone away, as you can see behind me. Um, I, I can't get enough of biblical scholarship and just being able to see what's being produced on scripture and, and how it can help the church to understand her identity and mission. Uh, it's the heartbeat of my life. Awesome. So um, kicking off here, so we are... Look, have been looking at your book, Bearing God's Name, and mm -hmm. we both love it. Ryan just read it. I've read it two or three times. And in that book, um, you examine what you call the second commandment. Some people call it the mm -hmm. third. So mm -hmm. it's one not to take God's name in vain. And Lately, people keep referring to it as the fourth commandment on wow. Facebook and, and then tagging me. And I'm like, hmm, by what metric is it the fourth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like the way I, that you count it. I tend to call it the name command because then we all know what we're talking about. <laughs> yep. So when I was, I was brought up thinking it was about swearing or cussing mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and even um, my kids go to a private Christian school. And so my first grade daughter, um, we had a week of virtual school a few weeks ago and they were going through the 10 commandments and for the name command, they used the swearing interpretation of it. Um, so can you explain as you do in your book, um, why that rendering might be bad and what, how should we interpret uh, the name command? Yeah, it's a great question. I, like you, grew up thinking it was telling us not to swear. Um, but when I began my doctoral studies at Wheaton, um, Dan Block, my advisor, challenged me to take a closer look at that command because he said it had been mistranslated. And so this wasn't my idea to come, that I came up with. Um, to reinterpret it. And in fact, Dan Block wasn't the first person to see this. There are people throughout history who have read the command this way, but it has been a minority. So I'm not surprised that your daughter's textbook talks about swearing because that's been, by and large been how the, at least the Western world has understood it. Um, but in Hebrew, the command says, you shall not lift up or carry the name of Yahweh your God and uh, in vain. And it, so many translators have come to that and they've thought, well, that doesn't really make sense because we don't carry names. Names are intangible. And so this must be a figure of speech that means something else or a shorthand for something else. And so they've tried to find parallel passages either within the Bible or in other ancient Near Eastern texts to explain, uh, you know, what could this possibly mean? And probably the majority view among scholars up until now has been that the 
command is prohibiting taking an oath in God's name, either that you don't intend to keep or, or um, that you subsequently break. But in fact, there's nothing in the command. There are no key words that would clue us into thinking about oaths or thinking about um, saying the name at all, whether it's flippantly or in any other way. And so what I wanted to do was take a closer look and see, are there any clues in the immediate context that could help us understand this command? And, and I found that there was just a few chapters away, we have Aaron, the high priest being, uh, his clothing is being prescribed as, uh, as part of the tabernacle instructions. And you might remember that on his chest, he's wearing 12 precious stones, one representing each of the 12 tribes. And then he has shoulder stones with six names on each shoulder. Mm -hmm. And it says specifically that he is to bear the names of the sons of Israel. So using the same two words, the same verb and the same object, bearing the names, um, that's what he does. And it, so I think when we look at Aaron, we see that he is representing the people the way the people are supposed to be representing God. And so I would argue that this command is actually telling the Israelites they belong to God. They bear his name. He's claimed them as his own, and therefore they're to represent him well among the nations. And then you get all the rest of the laws that are fleshing out what that's going to look like. How can you live as a people who represent him well? Well, you're not going to murder people, and you're going to honor your parents, and you're not going to steal, and you're going to keep the Sabbath. And so all the other commands are fleshing that out. Great. Yeah, so I really liked uh, your chapter about Aaron and uh, the priesthood and mm -hmm. bring that name. And you talk a little bit about how they have symbols that the high priests and that are like physically carrying. Yes. But then you talk about the invisible tattoo of mm -hmm. how they, the priesthood, relates to the whole community. Yes. Um, so could you explain a little bit maybe about that imagery and the importance behind that? Sure. Sure. So first I could just make the point that it's, it's not illegitimate to be connecting the people and the priest because in Exodus 19, right before we get the Ten Commandments, Moses announces to the people what God tells him, and that is that they are to be a kingdom of priests. So there's already priestly language being used of the whole nation. And then when we get Aaron's garments, I already talked about the gemstones on his chest and his shoulders, but he also has a name on his forehead. And that on his forehead, he has like a gold medallion, and it's inscribed with two words in Hebrew, kadosh la Yahweh, which means holy belonging to Yahweh. So it sets him apart from every other Israelite. He has access to the most holy place in the tabernacle. Nobody else can go there. So he has this dual role. He's representing God to the Israelites and representing the Israelites to God. And then that same language that appears on his forehead is also used to describe the people in the book of Deuteronomy. There's several places where it happens. Um, I think it's 20, chapter 26. I, now I you can look it up and see which which one it is. I think it's chapter 26, 9, and 10, where he calls them. Um, uh, I'll look it up because I um, I always get this reference wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I should know it by now. I've talked enough about it. Um, but as they ratify the covenant with God, he tells them that they are a people holy to Yahweh. Uh, it's 26 verses 16 to 19. Mm -hmm. um, you will be a people holy to Yahweh, your God, as he promised. And it's the same two words, kadosh la Yahweh. Only now it's not just applied to the high priest, it's applied to the whole nation. Um, and, and then in the next chapter, it says, the Lord will establish you as his holy people as he promised you on oath. If you keep the commands of Yahweh, your God, and walk in obedience to him, then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of Yahweh. 
and they will fear you. And in Hebrew, um, that called by the name of Yahweh is more literally, um, they will see that the name of Yahweh has been proclaimed over you, which is what happens in Numbers chapter six. Most of us don't spend a lot of time in Numbers, but the one part we've probably heard before is the priestly blessing. Yep. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you and give you peace. Um, that blessing is prescribed for Aaron to say to the people, and some would argue that this is happening every single day as part of the, the tabernacle um, procedures, that Aaron would be pronouncing this blessing every day. And it says in Numbers 627, and so you shall put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. So, so I'm not making this up, this idea that the people are carrying God's name. It says right there in Numbers 627 that he put his name on them. And it's being continually put on them through the priestly blessing. So there's this link between priest and people that is reinforced in lots of different ways. And so then it's natural for God to say, um, you are the people I've chosen to belong to me and to represent me among the nations. Therefore, don't carry my name in vain. That's great. Um, you mentioned a few things that God puts his name on mm -hmm. in, um, in the book, yeah. too, um, like... Uh, the temple, yep. I believe it is, and Jerusalem. Yep. And you even mentioned the Gentiles. Yes, there is one passage in the uh -huh. Old Testament in <laughs> Amos, Amos chapter 9, where it talks about all the Gentiles who bear my name. And it is such a surprising passage that Jewish interpreters have tried to make sense of it in other ways, because everywhere else in the Old Testament, when we talk about um, bearing, you know, something that bears God's name, it's intrinsic to the covenant. And the Gentiles aren't part of the covenant. So how could they possibly bear Yahweh's name? But Amos is looking ahead to a day when God will restore his people and include Gentiles who bear his name. And so that, in fact, is the passage that James points to in Acts chapter 15. The early church is meeting, the early church leaders are trying to decide what to do with Gentiles, because suddenly there are Gentiles interested in following Jesus, mm -hmm. and they have a decision to make. Do these Gentiles have to become Jews if they want to follow Jesus? Or could they follow Jesus as Gentiles? And Peter says, well, I preached and the spirit of God fell on them. And so and everywhere else in the Old Testament, the spirit of God is a sign of covenant membership. So it, it seemed to Peter like, well, they are members of the covenant because look, they have the spirit. And then James backs that up with Amos chapter nine saying, yeah, even Amos talked about this. He talked about the Gentiles who would bear Yahweh's name. And so they put together their experience with scripture to confirm that Gentiles indeed can be part of the covenant and represent God. Yeah, that's such a cool picture. Um... Yeah, I was always fascinated. I wrote a, a paper on, on that when I was in my yeah. master's program for yes. um, a class that I took on Acts. And mm -hmm. it was, it was uh, it's, it's such a, an interesting thing that, yeah, you see all this covenant stuff God's putting his name on. And then the yes. Gentiles who are, yes. seemed like most of the Old Testament, God didn't have anything to do with because they're outside the covenant. Right. So. And this is our link. If we're Gentiles, this is our link to the covenant. And this is why the subtitle of my book is, why Sinai still matters. I don't say why Sinai still matters if you're a Jew, because in <laughs> Acts 15, it's clear that Gentiles who follow Jesus are part of this same covenant. Mm -hmm. And then in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, Peter, Peter's writing his letter to a mixed audience of Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus. And he calls them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a chosen people, uh, a people for God's treasured possession. He uses the same titles that were used in Exodus 19 at Sinai to describe the Israelites as God's covenant people. And he just slaps those right on his mixed audience. And that's our ticket in. Uh, it's, it's really exciting stuff. 
So um, when we see the name command, it says not to bear God's name in vain. Um, mm -hmm. What, how do you take vain to mean? Yes, it's a great question because we don't, first of all, we don't talk about taking anyone else's name in vain, right? I can't take Matt's name in vain or I can't take Ryan's name in vain. <laughs> like we don't, that we only ever use this phrase taken from this command to talk about God's name. Um, so if we retranslate it the way I'm suggesting and say that this is about um, a command not to bear Yahweh's name in vain, um, then I would explain in vain as an adverb telling us how the name is being carried. And we could translate it empty or to no effect or falsely, unreliably. Um, there's a passage in Jeremiah 2.30 where um, God is lamenting the people's failure to respond to him, and they've been wicked, and he has chastened them, but they have refused to accept his instruction, and it says, in vain I've chastened you. Not, not that there was something wrong with God's chastening, but that it was ineffective, it didn't work, yeah. and so I think that could be um, part of what's going on here, that, that we're being told not to represent God in a way that's empty or ineffective. The whole point of God putting his name on his people is so that the other nations can watch the people of God and find out what he's like. If you are living in such a way that you don't demonstrate or exhibit the character of God, then people are going to get the wrong impression about who God is. And therefore it will be in vain. It will be sending the wrong message. That's great. Um, yeah, it kind of takes you to a little bit of like the exile and why it was so i guess such a a horrible thing yes yes it's the, the exile is a huge problem it's a huge problem for the israelites themselves because they believe that god's presence is in the temple in jerusalem at that point mm -hmm. and so for them to be taken away from the land means they're being cut off from the presence of God and they're they wouldn't know how to to navigate what does it mean to be a faithful Israelite if you don't have the temple you can't offer sacrifices there's no sacred space um, but it's it's a problem for another reason and Ezekiel spends time on this in chapter 36 and over and over again talks about how when the people were brought out of the land they profaned God's name everywhere they went because it was said of them these are Yahweh's people and yet they had to go out of his land mm -hmm. so it gives the impression that Yahweh is not powerful enough to protect his own people because if you're an ancient Near Eastern nation and you go to war you, every war every battle in ancient times was thought of as divine warfare it's basically my God is stronger than your God whichever God is strongest wins the battle and so for Jerusalem to have fallen to the Babylonians would have signaled automatically to the Babylonians and anyone else watching that the Babylonian gods are stronger than Yahweh. So, and yet the, the people of God had been totally unfaithful to the covenant. They'd broken all the commands. And so God had promised in Deuteronomy, if you're unfaithful to the covenant, then you will be overrun and taken into exile. So God needed to allow the exile to discipline his people. But because they bore his name, it was really bad PR because everyone else would interpret it through a different lens. And so that's the theological conundrum in Ezekiel 36. And God says, I'm going to have to wash you clean, bring you back to the land not because you're all deserving of that, but because my name needs to be reestablished as holy. It's, it's super, once you see this theme of bearing God's name, you'll see it all the way through the canon in, in every part of the Bible, in almost every book, there's references to it. And it, it seems to me to be really central to biblical theology. Yeah, um, so Ryan and I are part of an evangelical church and Ryan can attest to this because I guess, what are some examples, Ryan, of some bad um, 
interpretations of the law that that kind of we get mm-hmm. in the in the Western Church and. I think you, I think you, we see so many of these. I mean, just the Old Testament in general is so misunderstood. I mean, I think the mm-hmm. average church person simply tries to live by the New Testament and makes, makes no connection at all to the Old Testament, nor, yeah. you know, remnant living within the New Testament. They have mm-hmm. no idea what to do with Israel. You know, that's yeah. just, you know, and, and you start talking about different theologies of where is Israel? Did God completely spit out Israel? And then, yep. then you get into these end times conversations and people are, you know, Matt and I kind of always laugh when people are like, you know, having these conversations talking about the temple, you know, being rebuilt as if that would be something good that, you know, mm-hmm. Bible people want to see, you know? Right. And so, so my hard thing is, is trying to, you know, communicate to the church, just the overall picture of what this mm-hmm. looks like. And mm-hmm. I think that your book does a good job to doing that. It's, it's a little on the scholarly side though. How, how do we just start kind of clarifying a better picture to the normal church person. Yeah, I I think you're right that we tend to see one of two things. Either people just completely neglect the Old Testament because they don't know what to do with it, or they become fascinated with it in unhealthy ways and try to apply it in ways that that are unhealthy. So I would say um, if we can get this, this basic concept that at Sinai, God was choosing his people to represent him among the nations. And it's tying back to Abraham, the covenant with Abraham, um, which is first announced in Genesis 12, that God is going to bless Abram so that all nations would be blessed through him. So that blessing for all nations is then carried forward to Sinai where the whole nation is being brought in on this mission. I want to bring blessing to all nations. The way I'm gonna do that is by setting you as a city on a hill. You are going to represent me and Um, declare to the world what I'm like by how you live. They'll be able to look at you and see that you're different and see that I'm different. And um, Isaiah gives us a picture in early chapters of all nations streaming to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. There's a sort of magnetic force that's just attracting other people to see what God is like um, and to be somehow part of it. And so I would say in the Old Testament, the idea was to be a city on a hill that drew people in. And then in the book of Acts, we see it spun out a different way where Jesus sends out his disciples with the spirit of God among the nations to proclaim it. And so we're part of the going out phase rather than the coming in phase. And yet we are, um, because of all the things I've already explained, we are part of that covenant. We bear God's name. And therefore... um, Therefore, the law takes, I think the law needs to take its proper place as part of the mission of God. Often what I hear from, from evangelical Christians is that the law is bad news because mm-hmm. it just shows us how messed up you are and how much you need Jesus. Now, the law does show us because of our failure to keep the law, we can see our need to, for Jesus. But I think if we take the next step and say the law itself is bad because I can't keep it, then we've gone too far. Moses celebrates the law as a gift. God, one thing I start off saying in the book that I think is super important is that Moses, God does not tell Moses to show up in Egypt to set the people free from slavery with the Ten Commandments. He doesn't say, if you keep all these laws, then I will set you free. And that's another distortion we see in the church where people assume, well, the Jews tried to earn their way to God by keeping the law. We don't have to do that anymore because we have grace available in Jesus. No, the law was a means of God's grace to a people already set free. He was telling them how to live in such a way that the nations would see his character. Mm -hmm. So obviously, 
I, I assume this is obvious, although may, maybe it's not obvious to everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting that we take all the laws in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and do all of them just as they're written. They were addressed to a particular people in an ancient cultural context that is so different from ours. So if I decided not to wear clothing more, more woven of two kinds of material, like Leviticus 19 instructs, you're not going to get the message from that 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 law was supposed to be giving. So we have, we have to do the hard work of looking at the laws and saying, what is the principle behind this? Or what is this communicating in that ancient context? And then how might I communicate the same principle in my context today? And That's so I, I give an example in the book of, um, there's a command to, to build a parapet around your roof. Like the, they had flat roofs and they were, they were supposed to build walls around it so that when people were up hanging, hanging out on the roof, they wouldn't fall off the sides. Well, most of us don't have homes with flat roofs in the West. We, we have roofs like this and we're not hanging out up there unless it's time to replace the shingles. So that for me to put a wall around the edge of my roof is not helping anybody. But if I fail to put a railing on my staircase, or if I fail to shovel my sidewalk, or if I just leave big gaping holes in my yard that somebody could fall into and break a leg, then that would be, um, that would be breaking, I think, breaking the command to build a parapet around my roof. Because I'm, as a homeowner, my responsibility is to ensure the safety of the people who come on my property. And I think that's what that's getting at. So that's one example of the kind of work we need to do to, to think through how might these laws be relevant in our context. Yeah, it's definitely an issue of not only translating languages, which, you know, we mm-hmm. kind of have the Hebrew conversation yeah. here, which, you know, we don't, we don't even have that full way to translate. There's all kinds of stuff in Hebrew that we can't directly carry over to the English language. And mm-hmm. not only that, but then you get into this cultural language. Right. And I mean, often we just don't have all the cards to fully translate right. that. Too so, many churches are not even going there. They're just trying mm-hmm. to read read the Old Testament through the American lens. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, I hate to say it doesn't work at all, but it just about doesn't work at all. Yeah. You need to it, get back it into it that requires, mind. It requires you to be extremely selective if yeah. you're going to do that, yeah. um, because only some of them carry over in a, in a way that seems natural. Um, so there's the culture you mentioned and the language, but there's another barrier too, in that, or, or another changed reality. And that is the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And now he is the locus of God's presence. And so we don't have a temple anymore. We don't need a temple anymore. I would argue we never need a temple again because the sacrifice Jesus gave was once and for all. So that means we taking that back to the Pentateuch or the Torah, we, we're gonna see there's a lot of commands about ritual that take place in the tabernacle or in the temple. And we don't do those anymore. It's not like we're gonna take a black Sharpie through our Bible and cross that stuff out. We can still learn from it about God's holiness, but we're not going to do it. Yeah. And I never get those conversations. I mean, the Bible seems to be very clear in the New Testament, you know, as kind of looking back at the Old Testament is almost a commentary that Christ is sufficient. We're not Mm -hmm. looking for any more than that. And when we do, it's actually kind of a slap in the face to God, I think. And, you know, I'm just surprised at how many even great theologians don't come to terms with that, you Mm know? Yeah, there's a big fascination. Um, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but there's a big fascination with the modern day state of Israel among Christians and yeah, a desire yeah. to rebuild the temple and even um, Christians making donations so that it will be possible. And to me, that's a gross misrepresentation of yeah. where the Bible's heading. Yep. Uh, Jesus did away with that. We don't need a temple anymore. And most would, would be pointing to Ezekiel's temple 
in chapters 40 to 48 and saying, well, we haven't, we never saw that rebuilt to these dimensions. Um, and I would follow Dan Block in arguing that Ezekiel's temple was not a blueprint that was intended to be built. It was a metaphor or a symbol for the cleansing of the people of God. And so the measuring he's doing is like measuring them with a measuring stick. And the way he concludes that is that you have only horizontal measurements in Ezekiel's temple, nothing vertical. You actually can't build it because it doesn't say it doesn't say how high to make it right it's just it's like the it's like just blueprints as a symbol of the people's defilement and their need to be cleansed which fits with what we talked about for um for ezekiel 36 the profaning the name and the need for cleansing and it fits in the whole lens of scripture you know the other bone i have to pick is when you start picking and choosing you're going to look at this at this lens of scripture and then think of the temple differently and when you get to like Mm -hmm. ephesians 2 for instance that metaphorical temple language lines up exactly you know Mm -hmm. and so too many people they're they're representing you know temple language back here in ezekiel and then they get to ephesians and they want to do something different with it and that just simply doesn't work and i think all of this is motivated by a deep desire to be faithful to scripture like nobody's talking about rebuilding the temple because they're cavalier about the bible they're serious (laughs) about the bible and so i admire their seriousness but I think we need to, to be careful about what we are expecting from the prophetic books of the Old Testament. Um, what, what are we, what's our metric by which we decide whether something remains to be done or not? Mm-hmm. And I think the, the all sufficiency of the work of Christ is often neglected in those conversations. Yeah. Yeah. So growing up and even within a few years ago, um, there's kind of this idea of the, the Torah is legalistic or mm-hmm. i guess not grace but you argue yeah. that it is grace uh, can I you do. speak to that just a little bit yeah as i've already mentioned that the law is not given to the people before they're rescued but after they're rescued i think that's absolutely crucial for us to recognize um and but we can also look at what moses says i think it's deuteronomy 4 let me let me grab it a minute Um, I mean, Moses can't stop gushing about how wonderful the law is. He does not apologize for bringing it to the people. He doesn't say, you know, guys, I'm really sorry. I know you've just been under Pharaoh's oppression and you finally got free, but I'm going to have to saddle you with a bunch of other rules. And it's, you know, it's really a drag. No, he doesn't say that. He, he is celebrating, um, in, in Deuteronomy 4, starting with verse 5, he says, See, I've taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you're entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees. And when they hear about all these decrees, they don't say, Whew, so glad I'm not an Israelite. Have you heard what they have to do? Man, so glad to be, you know, a Babylonian. They're, They're actually hearing about all these decrees and Moses anticipates they're going to say, wow, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And now why would they say that? Well, every nation in the ancient world had aspirations of being well-ordered and Mm well-administered. And so if you were an ancient Near Eastern king and you wanted to demonstrate your wisdom in rulership, you would come up with a great big list of laws. And that would show that you have an ordered realm And so for the Israelites to have this constitution given to them at Sinai with with blueprints for an ordered society would have been something that made the other nations jealous. Not only is it bringing order, but 
that, that God is telling them exactly what he expects of them. They don't have to guess. It's, and often ancient Near Eastern religion was like a guess and check religion. Okay, our crops didn't grow this year. We had a drought. What did we do to anger the gods? I'm not sure. Uh, maybe there was a ritual we didn't do. Okay, let's try sacrificing this kind of animal on this day. That didn't work. Okay, maybe if we sacrifice one of our children, that'll do the trick. That'll bring rain. And there, there was this sense of desperation to pacify the gods so they wouldn't be angry so that things would grow and Yahweh does not make them guess he comes along and says here's what I expect of you and honestly we 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 read it and it sounds like wow that's a lot of stuff they had to do most of it is it would have been pretty obvious in an ancient Near Eastern environment it's not as though you shall not murder was a dramatic new uh, revelation that would have shocked people. Like any ordered society would have had laws against murder. Here they're being brought into this specific relationship with Yahweh where it's taking place. So, so maybe what seems really hard to us would have felt more natural to them. That's great. Yeah, so Brian and I were using your book for a class um, which looks at the Old Testament template kind of for discipleship and, okay. and living. And so, in one of the books um, that you know, it's basically called Discipling the Nations, and it looks at kind of the seven mountain mandate uh, philosophy. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Not... Um, so there's, they say there's seven mountains of influence in culture and mm -hmm. Christians, if they're doing their job right, should get to the top of all those seven mountains and take Okay. Uh, okay. Kind of with what we were talking about a little bit pre-show here of mm -hmm. uh, nationalism and stuff like that. Okay. So politics and entertainment and, and yeah. education and- yep. And yeah. so in this book, they kind of try to use the Torah to um, show mm -hmm. how an ordered society should look and applying Christian principles and things like that. And so Israel, yes, was supposed to be a light to the nations. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we do see that. Um, how was Israel supposed to go about this? And from your point of view, mm -hmm. um, and does it line up with, a, I guess, a mentality of a Christians having to rise to the top of these to change the culture and yeah. not bring about the kingdom. Per it's se. a real, it's a really good question. I'm glad you, I'm glad you raised it because this is a day and age in which a lot of Christians think that in order to be faithful, they need to, um, you know, take over government, reinstitute biblical law, that sort of thing. It's interesting that God does not. I would think if the seven mountain philosophy is what God was operating by, he would not have brought them out of Egypt. He would have gone to Egypt and he would have said, okay, here's the plan, guys. I want you to be the slave masters. I, like, I want you to take over grain production. I want you to take over building production. I want you to take over the educational system. I want you to work your way up in Egyptian society until you have the kind of influence that can make this society a light to the nations. But that's not what he does. He brings them into the wilderness, stripping them of all of the cultural context, the cultural trappings, and he starts from scratch with them in the wilderness. They're out there for a full year where he's, and, and of course they were in the wilderness longer, right? For 40 years because of their disobedience. But the original plan, like if they had been obedient and faithful, they would have been out there maybe two years. Um, and in that time, he was remaking and rebuilding them from the ground up as a nation, appointing Moses as leader, appointing elders under Moses to, to help settle disputes, giving them a law to live by, telling them in the book of Numbers where in which order to camp like bringing order to their own society. He does not have them go into Canaan and take over Canaanite, um, Canaanite forms of government. 
No, he, they're supposed to completely chase away the Canaanites, dismantle Canaanite society, and live according to the way that he, he asked them to live at Sinai. So I, I can see the value in Christians being persons of influence in our society. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have Christians in entertainment and Christians in politics. I, I'm not saying we should withdraw, but I don't think it's the church's mandate to take over these institutions and try to implement biblical law. I think instead what we see when Jesus comes, he does not tell his followers to work their way up the Roman, you know, mountains of yep. influence. He actually, he actually tells them to turn the other cheek. He tells them to be salt and light to go out. You know, there's persecution that scatters them and they bring the message where they go. So yeah, that doesn't seem to me to be a, a politically driven agenda. Yeah. There's, there's politics in the gospel, but it's not, it's not like that. Yep. So you just mentioned Sermon on the Mount, and tonight I'm starting a Bible study at our church on Sermon on the Mount. Nice. Um, and I, when you did the interview with uh, Tim Mackey and John Collins mm -hmm. in Bible Project, you mentioned a bit about um, the Lord's Prayer um, and how that connects to the name. Yes. Yeah, this is, this is something I kind of discovered or hit me between the eyes as I was reading through, as I worked on my dissertation, I reread the entire Bible in English, just looking for where else does this idea of, of bearing God's name come up. And here is one of many places that are very familiar parts of the Bible where it was right there in plain sight and I had missed it. Jesus mm -hmm. prays, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I, I don't know that I'd ever stopped to think about it deeply but if you'd asked me growing up, what does it mean to hallow God's name? I might've been confused because isn't God's name already holy? Why would it need to be made holy? But this connects to what we talked about already with Ezekiel 36. The reason God's name was not holy, the reason it had been profaned was because the people who bear his name had failed to obey him. And so when Jesus says, hallowed be your name, I believe he's recognizing God's reputation has suffered because we have not been faithful to the covenant. And I think he's committing himself to living as a faithful covenant member. Hallowed be your name means I'm going to go love my neighbor as myself. I'm going to be loyal to only Yahweh. And so he models that for us. Uh, there's a new book that just came out by Justo Gonzalez called Teach Us to Pray. And he works his way through the 10, not, not 10 commands, through the Lord's Prayer. And he has, he, he says this same thing that I said, but he does it with all the other phrases too. You know, things like our father. Yeah. Why do we say our father, not my father? Um, why do we say give us this day our daily bread? Well, that implies that if God gives me more than what I need for a day, my job is to share it with you if you don't have what you need for a day. Like I, I'm praying for us to have what we need, which means I'm then committed to helping be part of the solution to the prayer that I've prayed, which is... Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Challenging. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So um, I know Ryan and I aren't Jewish, um, <laughs> um, but how does like this, we talked a little bit about how the name bearing command applies to Gentiles. Mm -hmm. um, so would you mind kind of explaining how that and um, discipleship for the church today, how, how does that connect? Sure. So I've already mentioned that in Acts 15, the key uh, moment of letting the Gentiles into the covenant 
was by recognizing that they were people, they were the Gentiles over whom God's name had been called. They, they bore his name mm -hmm. along with the Jews. So that together with first Peter two, nine and 10, where they're called God's treasured possession and the kingdom yeah. of priests. I think that's, that's a really clear. Um, those two passages are really clear that Gentiles are now um, part of the covenant with faithful Jewish followers of Jesus. And I think the same dynamic we saw at Sinai is true of the church. You know, some people want to say law is an Old Testament thing, but in the New Testament, it's all about grace. Well, have you read Paul? Because every letter Paul writes is about half exposition and half exhortation. Paul does not just say, hey, guys, you're all good. He tells them all kinds of things about how they are to live, how they are to love their neighbor, mm -hmm. how they are to operate as a church community. And so I think that just like the laws at Sinai defined what it looked like to live as the people of God, I think the New Testament letters define what it looks like to live as God's people. And it, it involves a lot of doing. Mm -hmm. It's not that we're doing in order to earn salvation. It's never been that. It wasn't that at Sinai. What, what the doing is for in the New Testament is the same thing the doing was for in the Old Testament. That is, it makes life nicer for the community if we're loving each other. And it's a matter of mission. When I am living well and I'm obeying these commands that God has handed down through his apostles, I'm actually demonstrating to the world what Jesus is like. And so that makes it a, a matter of mission. So my discipleship, my obedience is not just about me and Jesus kind of individualistically. Everything about the Christian life is on display for the world and it's done in community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just like in Romans 8, it talks about us being conformed to the image of Christ, who is the true image bearer and, yes. the, and the true name bearer, I guess. Yes. Yeah, he takes these two threads together, the uh -huh, yep. being God's image and bearing God's name, and he ties them together. Yeah, and you talk about those being slightly different because covenant people bear God's name, but all yes. of humanity are image bearers. That's right. And I think I think the impulse among a lot of Christians is to say, if, if they are going to be a fan of any part of Old Testament law, it's the Ten Commandments. And the part they want to be on display in the public square, including in our courthouses, is the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments aren't for the nations. The Ten Commandments are for the covenant people. Yep. You can't bear God's name in vain if you don't bear God's name. <laughs> and you don't bear God's name unless you're a covenant member. So, so yes, the Gentiles are invited in, but that doesn't make every Gentile a name bearer. Only those who've entered into the covenant bear God's name. So we can't go around telling the world at large, hey, don't bear God's name in vain. Um, it's, it's, it's irrelevant. Yeah. But every human being is the image of God, therefore should be treated with dignity. Every human being is um, meant to represent the creator God's dominion over the earth and is supposed to exercise that in ways that provide for human flourishing and for the flourishing of the natural world. So I think we can still call people to lean into that human vocation, even if they're not followers of Jesus. Um, but it's the second tier of election, this second level of becoming part of the covenant that that brings with it a greater responsibility great and so i guess final question we want to respect your time and mm -hmm. i've got to go pick up my kids from school um All right. <laughs> so um we've done a few episodes on christian nationalism mm -hmm. and the importance of seeing ourselves as living in god's kingdom and kingdom yeah. citizens and yes. god's kingdom is not of this world uh, his kingdom is within us, but America is not God's kingdom. Canada mm -hmm. is not God's kingdom. Mm -hmm. um, you've made some of these connections in by pairing that with bearing God's name, mm -hmm. not bearing God's name in vain. Yes. Um, Want to talk maybe a little bit about your thoughts of name bearing, especially in the 
the recent episode at the Capitol where we've yes. seen American flags, Trump flags, and flags they make America godly Jesus. again. Yep, and flags yeah. say Jesus saves and everything. Yes. That, yeah. Yeah. Yes. The, okay. So so we're recording this a week after the the riot at the Capitol, the insurrection, whatever you want to call it, the attempted coup, um, and. It's become very clear in just a week's time that there are a thousand different ways to spin what happened. And it's very complex and hard to disentangle all the different people who were at the Capitol and why they were there. So there was the Save America rally at which Trump spoke for a full hour, kind of pumping people up and um, sharing the message that he believed there was election fraud and that they should all walk, they should all march, walk over to the Capitol and make their voices heard. He did use the word peacefully at one point, but he also riled up the crowd significantly. At the same time, there was something called the Jericho March going on. So from the second through the sixth, they advertised prayer, fasting, um, pleading for our nation and specifically in support of the president of the United States. So this was a, a gathering of Jew, Jude, it's, it's, it's a Judeo-Christian movement. So calling Jews and Christians, they blew a shofar, they were carrying Bibles, um, it was, it was, they, they marched around public buildings wanting evil empires to fall, but it's very clear from the rhetoric on the website that the evil empire that is supposed to fall is whatever opposes Donald Trump and his presidency. So, so there was the Save America, the Jericho March, and then possibly troublemakers that mixed in with both of them that just like to show up wherever there's a lot of people to make trouble. So I don't want to suggest that it was the evangelical church that was responsible for the breach of the Capitol. I, you know, it'd be very interesting to interview every person who actually entered the building to find out what their motivation was. Yeah. And I don't think we can just make a blanket statement and say Christians breached the Capitol, but there was a very troubling blend. To me, it was troubling blend of crosses Bibles, make America godly again, Trump dressed as Rambo with a machine gun, um, this, this fusing of American nationalism and Christian faith so that the two are no longer able to be separated. That's very troubling to me. Um, someone suggested that one of the guys with the Jesus Save sign was from Charlotte, North Carolina, and he's a downtown preacher and he preaches all the time and he was there preaching to the rioters great if that's what he was doing but but the message that the world got from the footage of that event or that incident is that christians will not obey the rule of law that they are not willing to abide by a by a fair and free election that they're willing to break the law in order to make their voices heard um and that's really troubling to me because that's a, a very tangible example of bearing God's name in vain. I'm going to have a shirt with Jesus on it, and I'm going to go cause trouble. Now, very quickly, people rush in and say, well, there were a lot of riots over the summer for the Black Lives Matter movement, and there was a lot of destruction of property, and you weren't speaking up against that, so why would you speak up against this? And the, the reason is because in over the summer, you didn't have people, at least I don't have examples of people who had crosses and Bibles and Jesus t-shirts who were doing burning and looting. So yes, there were Christians out marching peacefully, separate occasions from rioters. So it, it's complex, but I believe that we need to call the church back to faithful discipleship. And I think that it's very dangerous for the church to hitch their wagon to any politician, mm -hmm. Democrat or Republican. 
I don't believe that our US or Canadian political system is the answer to ushering in the kingdom of God. Therefore, I'm not distraught over the winning or losing of any politician because God is still on the throne and he can use and work. He, he, he works in the church in powerful ways when the church is being persecuted in countries where it's illegal to gather, the gospel spreads. So I don't think that the church is in danger if we have a different president than we've had for the past four years. And there are a lot of Christians who seem to be staking their hope on a particular president with particular policies. And, and I, I see that as problematic because of all the other baggage that comes with it. What's interesting to me is that you kind of have this Christian contention that truly believes that America is God's country. That, yes. you know, almost speaking in the terms of it being like a second Israel, you know? And, yes. And that seems to be this very well-accepted thought. I mean, I've heard several preachers almost preaching that kind yeah. of nationality from the pulpit. And I kind of stand back and just have to say, where did you ever get that thought? Yeah, where did they get that thought? You know, we've lived overseas. We lived in the Philippines for a while. Now we're living in Canada. That's given us a little bit of uh, distance. Um, it was when we lived in the Philippines that I had my first major wake-up call. I grew up in a conservative evangelical environment in Colorado. Um, we were in the Philippines under Bush's presidency. We were there from 2001 to 2004, five. Uh, no, sorry, 2002 to 2005. And um, I remember a friend, a fellow missionary from New Zealand and I were talking politics one day and she said to me, Carmen, I cannot imagine a Christian voting for George Bush. Hmm. And I said, Hillary, every Christian I know voted for George Bush. And she was flabbergasted because she was looking at it from uh, in an international perspective and seeing all of the implications of Republican policy on the international scene that seemed antithetical to the gospel. Hmm. And Christians often will look at the Republican platform and say, this is the one that lines up the best with scripture because it protects the life of the unborn. And I am pro-life and I believe that it's important for us to protect the lives of the unborn, but there, that is not the only Bible related issue. Mm -hmm. And so when we had that conversation, it woke me up to other perspectives. And when we came back to the States, my husband and I both changed our voter registration to independent. And we did so very deliberately because we, we feel like it's a, it's a gospel issue. It's a discipleship issue, not to be hitched to one party or the other. So we're free to vote in any election for any candidate who we think will best contribute to human flourishing and the order and proper administration of our nation. Um, but we refuse to hitch to a particular party uh, at all costs. And I, I would love to see the American church wake up to that and, and disconnect from the Republican party. And when I say American church, I mean the white American church because there are black Christians and brown Christians and Asian Christians who would not at all identify as as Republicans, so I don't want to lump everybody together, but um, for, by and large, the white evangelical church voted in favor of Trump. And what we're seeing is a lot of Christian nationalism that seems to assume that that's the only faithful Christian option when it comes to voting. And I think that's, I think that's problematic theologically. Yep, exactly. For all the reasons we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Carmen, thank you so much. Dr. Imes, we've loved having you on. Um, we just love this conversation about bearing God's name. So Ryan, thank you uh, for having me. Ryan, want to close us out? Sure. Thanks again for having us. And uh, if you haven't picked up 
this book, this is a good place to start. And we're looking forward to the other works in the future as well. Thank you again for your time and your energy on the show today. Thank you for everyone who tuned in to watch another episode of Expedition 44. May God bless you and keep you. Thank <laughs> you.